thank you. Thank you for having me here. And let's, uh, let's open in prayer, and then we will jump into the Word of God. Father God, you are good. You are gracious. You are kind. You are holy. Father, we recognize that you are sovereign over our lives. You are sovereign over everything. We are thankful for the way that you take care of us, you provide for us. Lord, you have allowed us to be in a country that allows us to assemble freely to worship you. And we are thankful for that. Lord, you have been so kind to us this week. As we have, each and every one of us in this room, have sinned against you this week, you have not given us the just penalty for that sin, but you have been gracious to us, and so we thank you for that as well. Lord, you have made promises to us, and we cling to those. You have promised forgiveness to those who trust in Christ, and we cling to that. We also cling to the promise that you have said that if anyone lacks wisdom, that he is to ask of you, and you will give it freely. And so, Lord, today we ask for wisdom. Because, Father, we don't want to be just hearers of your word. We want to be doers of the word. We want your word to change us and conform us to the image of your Son. So, Father, we ask for that. We ask that you would impart your wisdom into our hearts and that you would change us and conform us. We love you, Lord. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Acts 17, 24 to 28 says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. In him we live and move and have our being. You are here today. You individually, some of you I know, some of you I don't. You are here today because the sovereign God who formed you, who knew you before he placed you in your mother's womb, chose to bring you here today. And you have come to hear from him. You have come to listen to what the Almighty has declared, and you have come because you desire to have a transformed life. You want to hear how men of old followed God, and you want to follow that example. So today, we are going to look at one of those men. We're going to look at the man named Nehemiah. Um, Nehemiah, that, so in the Old Testament, You've got the first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah lived uh, in the 5th century before Christ. He lived, in, he lived after the Babylonian exile. The nation had been devastated and taken into slavery, and the temple had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C. The Jews had tried to rebuild the temple 50 years later. However... They were forcibly prevented from doing so because the king thought they were trying to rebuild the empire, that they were trying to rebuild 
the Israelite kingdom because they're trying to build the temple. The people are like, no, we're just trying to build the temple because we want to worship God. But he stopped them. It, it, was, it wasn't until the second year of Darius that they were finally able to complete the temple in 516, which was some 20 years later. By Nehemiah's time, God's people had been in captivity for about 150 years. In that time, the empire they had been under had changed. Babylon had fallen to Persia, yet the Jews remained in exile and in captivity. A select few had been able to return, but they were few and far between. This is the world of Nehemiah. So this is where the protagonist in this story, this Nehemiah, this is the world he lives in. He's in exile. Through the years, he had risen in his position and influence. And by the end of chapter one, he's going to tell us that he is the cupbearer of the king. He lived in relative comfort in Susa, which was a leading city in the Persian Empire. So let's walk through Nehemiah chapter one. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter one. We're going to walk through chapter one and watch as the scripture unfolds and introduces us to this man. Nehemiah one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the, of, in the month of Shizlev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, which is also Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. This portion of scripture reads as a personal account of Nehemiah. He gives the date. He gives specific names. He gives his location. This is essentially the diary of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in Susa, and his brother and several men from Judah come and visit him. This trip from Jerusalem to Susa is about, it's about 900 miles. So to put that into context, because we don't often travel 900 miles, that would be like traveling from Wilmington to Chicago. But not in your car, not on a plane. This is on camel, horseback, on foot. It's a bit of a journey. This is not a small distance. And so when these guys got here, Nehemiah asked them, how is it back in the homeland? How are the people? How is Jerusalem? The temple, it's rebuilt, right? Well, what did these visitors have to say? They had no good news for him. The people were troubled and shamed. The temple may have been rebuilt, though it was a disappointing version of the temple compared to the Solomonic temple that had been destroyed. So the temple stands, but the walls around the city are in ruins and the gates are burned. This means that the people are exposed to the elements. Right? They're, they're living in a home, but there was no defense, so other nations could come in, or wild animals can just come in. You know, we, we put fences around our yards because of coyotes, right? But back then, where it's even more wild, and there's lions and larger animals, robbers are coming in, there was no defense. In verse 4, the scripture tells us that Nehemiah says, when I, So it was when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. 
When Nehemiah heard the report, he's sick. He just, it's like someone punched him in the stomach. He's weak. He sits. He cries. He mourns. And for days, that overwhelming sorrow, the feeling of inability, how long did he feel like this? Is it, you know, you get the bad news and, you know, but 20 minutes later, he's distracted on something else. No, no, no. No, if we look at when he finally speaks to the king about it, it looks like he was in this state for four months. Four months goes by, and he just still feels this just awfulness. And at the end of those four months, Nehemiah accidentally lets it show on his face what's going on in his heart. The king notices him and says, why is your face sad, seeing as you're not sick? By the way, that's an offense that you could get killed for. You're in the presence of the king. You're a cupbearer. You're not supposed to be sad. You're supposed to be, everything's happy, king. We're all good. Like, what's, what's, wrong, what's wrong with you? You're not sick. Why, why, why do you look like that? And the king had the discernment to say, this is nothing but sadness of heart. He looked and said, I can see what's going on. Something is eating away at you. The pain, the ache that Nehemiah was feeling was so intense that four months later, he's still praying. He's still mourning, so much so that the king himself noticed. Why would Nehemiah feel that way? It's a city, right? Why does it matter that its walls are torn down? Why does it matter that the people there are in trouble and are feeling shame? Nehemiah wasn't. He's the cupbearer of the king. He was comfortable. He had a career. He had respect. He was honored. If you wanted to mess with Nehemiah, you had to mess with the king. Why does he care? There were cities all over the world at that point that had broken down walls. Half of them, his king had done the work. So why is it that with all the people in all the world that were undergoing atrocities, with all the cities that were broken down, why should Nehemiah care about this one? Why would this rock Nehemiah's world? He almost certainly had not been to Jerusalem. Remember, it's a 900-mile journey. He knew some people that had been there and maybe someone who had lived there, but, but he didn't really interact with them often. So why does Nehemiah care? Well, before we answer that question, let me pose the same question to you. Are there people that you've never met around the world that you care about? I know you guys support missionaries. I don't know which ones, the, the Perrys, right? Why would they go to Canada? Why would they, I, I, I don't know where they're from originally, but I do know people that our church supports. Doug and Sabrina put their lives on hold to go over to Kenya to work with an orphanage. Mike and Diane have gone on countless trips down to Ecuador to share the gospel. The Lawrences and Gravinos put their lives on hold, uprooted their families, and have gone to parts around the world to support the church and strengthen the church and to share the gospel. Why would they do this? Why would they interrupt their lives for people they don't know? Like, I get it. If you know somebody, okay, you're going you're gonna to be that, that good son or daughter and uproot your life and go take care of your parents. You move, well, people are like, okay, I understand some duty. But you're going somewhere where you don't know people. You have to learn the language. Why are you doing this? It's, our missionaries do it because they love God. Because they love God, they therefore have to love God's people, even the ones that they've never met. That's why they do it. 
Why does Nehemiah care? Nehemiah cares because it's God's city, Jerusalem. It's God's temple. They are God's people. The shame of the city is viewed by the watching world as a reproach on God himself. His people's shame is God's shame. The fact that Jerusalem lacked walls and gates reflected to the watching world and what they thought, the watching world says, the God of Israel can't even get walls around his city. Look at that. And Nehemiah could not bear that. He knew the real reason why the walls were broken down and burned. He knew that it was because the people had abandoned God, not the other way around. It's not that God had abandoned his people, therefore the walls went down. It's the people had abandoned God, and God had allowed the people to have what they asked for. The people wanted freedom from God and his rules, and he said, go ahead, how's that going to work for you? Oh wait, your walls are torn down, and your city is destroyed, and your gates are burned with fire. God let them experience the freedom in their rebellion, and it was devastating. And Nehemiah wept. So what does Nehemiah do about it? Well, in verse 5, he begins to pray. And I, Nehemiah, said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Nehemiah opens his prayer by calling on the covenant name of God. When you see in your Bible, Lord, in all caps, notice how the font's a little bit different there, L-O-R-D in the capital. That's because the translators didn't quite want to write the word Yahweh, which is what that word is in Hebrew. That's the name of God. So they said, well, we're going to call it Lord because we don't want to take the name of Yahweh in vain, though that's not what that means to do it like that. But anyway, so that, that Lord, when it's in your scripture, that's the name Yahweh. So he, what he's saying is he's saying Yahweh calls him by his covenant-making, covenant-keeping name, Yahweh, God of heaven, O great and awesome God. Nehemiah recognizes he is talking to God. He's speaking with the one true God. He's speaking to the God whom he knows made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's speaking with Yahweh who brought Egypt to her knees, who parted the Red Sea, who brought down Jericho with trumpets and made Israel a great nation. Nehemiah comes to God. And when he comes to God, he comes in awe of God. Is this how we approach the throne of grace? Is this how we come to the one living God? But Nehemiah doesn't just come to God and say how awesome God is. Nehemiah also reminds Yahweh, though of course Yahweh can't forget, but he reminds Yahweh that Yahweh is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is a particularly interesting thing for Nehemiah to bring up. To bring up Yahweh's covenant making and covenant keeping at this point is like reminding a police officer about the laws about theft and larceny as you're sitting there holding a stolen television. Right? You, you don't do that. If you stole something, and there's an officer, you don't say, hey, officer, remember, North Carolina Code 35, Section 104 says, you know, if you take something from somebody's house, that's theft, and it's punishable by X thousand dollars in time in prison. You don't do that. 
because you're breaking the law. But Nehemiah brings up to God, by the way, you're the God who makes covenants and keeps covenants. This is why this matters. Israel had broken their covenant. Israel's not keeping their covenant and all this bad stuff's happening to them. They had broken the covenant, and this is happening. Israel had broken the covenant with Yahweh over and over again. They had failed to love God. They had not kept his commandments. And Nehemiah's language here reflects an important truth that Nehemiah knew about Yahweh. Yahweh forgives. You don't bring up your total and utter guilt unless you think there's hope of forgiveness. This is the same truth that Jonah knew over 300 years prior. It's the reason why when God said, Noah, go to Nineveh, do you remember what Noah did? He ran away. That doesn't make any sense if you look at the, the text and it says, what's the message Noah, uh, that Jonah had? Jonah's message to Nineveh was not repent. Jonah's message was 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. If you hate the people in Nineveh, you should have like party balloons, right? Get post billboards. 40 days, guys, we're doing a countdown clock. Everybody ready? Set your clocks. We're going to, you know, we're doing an advent calendar for the destruction of Nineveh. Like 40 days, pull out a piece of candy every day. But why did Jonah not want to go? Because when God forgave them, when they repented and God said, I will relent of that. Jonah said, I knew it. That's why I didn't want to come. Because I knew you're a forgiving God. I knew if they asked forgiveness and repented that you would forgive. I didn't want you to forgive them. Nehemiah knows this truth too. That God is a God who forgives. And that's why he brought it up. But in our text, Nehemiah brings up God's covenant making and covenant keeping at the beginning of his prayer. He starts with, Yahweh is awesome. He is the God of heaven. He is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments is this how you approach god do you come to him acknowledging who he is do you recognize that he's not just a therapist that you go and tell your problems to he is not just some generous grandparent or uncle that gives you whatever you ask for he's not just a friend that you get to chat with no he is the god of the universe he is the great an awesome God. He is the God who makes covenants and keeps them. Is this how we approach him? Is this how you approach him when you've failed him? Remember, even when you failed him, God does not change. You may have acted treacherously. You may have sinned against God in a way that you yourself are shocked that you have done. But God remains constant. And as his children, we have the ability to come to him boldly. Not arrogantly, but boldly, confidently. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. Nehemiah continues in verse 6 with his bold approach to the Almighty and he says, Please, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you 
and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah calls out to God and asks him to hear and see. This is not failure on Nehemiah's part to understand God's omniscience. Rather, this is a plea of someone who knows that if God was not the forgiving and loving God who he is, that Nehemiah would have no hope that God would listen to him. He cries out to God asking him to listen to Nehemiah's prayer that he is praying day and night on behalf of the people. He's calling, he's calling on God to listen. And what is Nehemiah praying for? Does Nehemiah pray for deliverance? Does Nehemiah here pray for the removal of shame and trouble? Does Nehemiah pray that the walls would be rebuilt here? Does he pray that the gates would at least be restored? No. Here, Nehemiah is pleading with God for the sins of the people to be forgiven. And not just of the people, not just of them. But Nehemiah prays that God would forgive his sins and the sin of his family. Nehemiah is resounding with the psalmist in Psalm 32, verse 5, where the psalmist declares, I acknowledge my sin to you and I do not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Nehemiah is confessing. He's not covering. He's not trying to word their situation in the best light possible. He's not saying, God, you know, we've been in exile and we're doing the best we can. Like, there's some things that we've messed up a little bit. But, you know, if, if you build the walls, everything will be right again. No. He acknowledges, he owns his sin. He comes at it head on and says, we have sinned against you. We have acted corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded. He confesses to God whom he knows forgives. Nehemiah goes on in verse 8. Remember, remember I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Really? Is that what Nehemiah wants him to remember? <laughs> They've been unfaithful. He just said, we've been unfaithful. Okay, he says, if, we are, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah articulates that he understands why the people are in the position that they're in. Nehemiah knows that it's because of the people's unfaithfulness that they are spread across the globe. He knows the city lies in ruins because the nation's wickedness. And Nehemiah calls on God to remember that as well. Because Nehemiah is making sure to bring attention to the fact that the promise of cursing for unfaithfulness is immediately followed by a promise of restoration if they repent. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen and make my name dwell there. Church, we love to claim the good promises of God, don't we? We love to talk about the blessings of our God and King. We love to remember when He promises good things. But what about the curses? Do the curses not also prove God's faithfulness? What about the crushings? What about the promise of suffering and pain? 
do we cling to those as well? There's a song that we sing at Cornerstone sometimes, and part of it has as a refrain, shall I take from your hand your blessing, yet not welcome any pain? Shall I thank you in days of sunshine, yet grumble in days of rain? We are so quick to give credit to God for the good in our lives, but why do we shy away from the fact that he is still completely in control when things are going poorly? Do you remember he promised it? He promised that to us. He said, they hated me. They will hate you also. He promised us suffering in this life. He promised that. But he also promised us that he is going to pour out his riches and kindness on us in eternity. Do not look at when you are persecuted, when you are hated, when you are reviled, when that family member won't talk to you because you're one of those Christian people. Don't, don't feel shame at that. Find yourself privileged to suffer for the sake of the gospel and pursue that person. I, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm doing it anyway. Uh, the requirement that we have to share the gospel is, is a funny one that the world doesn't understand because we, we are sent on a rescue mission. You are sent on a rescue mission to Leland. The problem is the people in Leland are armed and want you dead. And your job is to get them alive <laughs> back. So we go with good news saying you are a sinner you have sinned against the holy God and you have earned hell. And they want to throw stones at you and kill you. And you say, no, no, I'm trying to tell you your situation so I can tell you that there is a solution. And they say, no, I'm not going to hell. I hate you. You're a bigot. You're a intolerant. You're this. No, 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 I'm not. I'm trying to tell you this so that I can tell you that there is a solution. If you don't believe there's a problem, you won't look for a solution. Here's the problem. Your sin. You are dead in your sin. But God is interested in making you alive. And he forgives. He forgave me. He will forgive you. Just come to him. We are on a rescue mission trying to save the lives of people who are trying to kill us. It is a hard task. But this is why the disciples, when they were beaten, they came out from their beating rejoicing at the fact that they had been considered worthy to suffer for Christ. So when you suffer, don't think, what am I doing wrong? You think, how can I honor Christ in this? And is my suffering because of what I'm doing right? Because if it is, you get to praise God for your suffering, that he considers you worthy to suffer. We're quick to give God credit for the things that are good, but what about do we recognize his sovereignty when things go poorly? Are we afraid to talk about God's sovereign control when things aren't going according to plan? Are we afraid that if someone questioned us about God's control in the bad times that we wouldn't know how to justify or vindicate him? When you go to the doctor and the doctor says, the cancer's gone away, praise God, look what God did. But what about when we go to the doctor and the doctor says, the cancer, ha the cancer has metastasized and is now not just in your liver, it's now in your bones and in your blood. Do we walk out and saying, wow, God is still so sovereign? 
Or do we say, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know where God is right now. Let me make something very clear. God does not need our vindication. We don't need to protect God. Uh, C.S. Spurgeon, or Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that said, um, he was talking in the scriptures, but God in the scriptures, he said, I would no sooner protect, try to protect the scriptures than I would try to protect a lion. You don't, you don't protect it, you just let it loose. Right? Let God stand on his own because he can handle it. Um, he is righteous and just all the time. But in our own understanding, in our own hearts and minds, do we recognize that God is justified in everything he does? When he allows the things to happen that you would never write into your own story, do you recognize that he is sovereign? Because Nehemiah did. And he articulates the just the justification and vindication of God. He understood that God had the right to allow Jerusalem to sit in ruins. And he had the right to allow his chosen people to waste away as a result of their own sin. But Nehemiah was asking for something more than what they deserved. He was asking for mercy, something beyond them. He was asking for mercy and faithfulness on God's behalf toward a people who had not been faithful to him. Do you recognize and acknowledge your failures before God? He already knows them. When you try to cover your sin before the Lord, you are only lying to yourself. I mean, I guess you're trying to lie to God, but the thing is, he already knows. I may have had a child that will remain unnamed, um, my son, that I only have one of. So you can pick which son, which child it was. But I said, did you, son, did you eat something? He said, only the granola bar you gave me. I said, are you sure? He said, yep. I said, son, go ahead and go into the bathroom, look in the mirror, and then come back here and sit on the steps and talk to me. And he came back in, and guess what? The, the blue icing that was on his face was gone when he came back. But I said, son, you tried to lie to me. Oh, well, you know, and all the excuse and the discipline and all that that happened next. But that's what it's like when we try to sin, like when we try to, to lie to God about our sin, when we try to present ourselves as good to God. Are you kidding me? He knows not just what you do. He doesn't just see the, the icing here. He watched you do everything. He watches everything, and he knows what's in your heart and in your mind. He knows it all. Don't fake it. He already knows. It's foolishness to try to hide it from God. You are only lying to yourself. We live in a land that is the constant recipient of God's gracious hand. We have food every day. We have shelter and safety. We don't fear the things that many around the world fear. You're not trying to figure out how you're going to eat this week. You're not afraid that when you leave here that a traveling band of Taliban from the warlord next door are going to come and kill you on the way home. That's not really a fear that we have. And it's not because we're better that we don't need to fear these things. It's not because we're more godly, because we're not. It's not anything within us. It's simply that God has chosen to be gracious to us. He is just in being gracious, and he is just if he chooses to allow us to suffer. He is just when your 401k got 35% three years ago, and he is just when your 401k lost 20% this past you know, quarter. He is just all the time. We must embrace 
that we have a just God who is vindicated in every action that he does. Let's look at what Nehemiah does in the last two verses. 10 and 11. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah continues his prayer by drawing out that the people suffering in Jerusalem are God's people, the ones whom God himself has redeemed. This is the same nation that God brought brought out of Egypt and demonstrated his mighty works through. Nehemiah declares himself to be the servant of the Lord and asks Yahweh to listen to his prayer and to the prayers of those who fear his name. We see in the rest of the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah fears Yahweh more than he fears the king, more than he fears the attacks of the nations around him, and he fears God more than anything. This is quite a prayer. Beyond confession and asking God to hear him, Nehemiah hasn't really asked for anything yet. At the very end, in the last part of his prayer, Nehemiah makes his request. He asks God to give him success and to grant him mercy in the sight of the king. We know from reading the rest of Nehemiah that God answers Nehemiah's prayer. But Nehemiah didn't know this yet. Nehemiah didn't know how the situation was going to turn out. It could be that he opens his mouth to the king and the king cuts his head off. Nehemiah was fast approaching the precipice of taking his life in his hands for the sake of God's city, God's people, and God's reputation. And he approaches the edge on his knees. Prayer is not the last resort. It is not the umbrella you grab before you walk out the door. It is to be the very first thing that we do. Christian, your God is powerful. He made the world. He formed life. He raises up people and he brings them down. He crushes and he heals. Do you pray to him? Do you pray like Nehemiah prayed? Do you know him like Nehemiah did? Do you care about God's reputation and God's people like like Nehemiah did? I charge you, emulate this godly man. If you don't know him, if you don't know this God, come and talk to me after and let me tell you about him. He's, he made the world and he created you specifically, each and every one of you. He made you for a purpose and that purpose was you were to be perfect and to worship him. Well, here's the problem. You have not been perfect. This day you have not been perfect. And because of that, Because you have failed and you have rebelled against him and run from him, you have earned his wrath. And the penalty of sin, even one sin, is death. But I have good news. The scripture teaches that the scripture teaches the truth all the way through it that Nehemiah knew. And that truth is God forgives. He loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life. The life that you should have lived but did not. And then he died on a cross. The death that you should have died for your sins. But instead of remaining dead, Jesus rose from the dead and is now at the right hand of the Father. 
and he's willing to make a trade with you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us so that we may become the righteousness of God in him. The trade that God is willing to make here. Jesus Christ said, I will give you my perfect life. I lived 33 years of perfection. I will take that and put it onto your account. And I will take your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, and put it on my account. That is the transaction that has happened between me and God. He forgave me and traded places. Christ traded places with me. So that when God looks down to judge me, do you know what he sees? He does not see Trevor plus Jesus. Because guess what? You add Trevor to the equation, no good. He sees Jesus Christ. He sees 33 years of perfection of following God's commands. And God says, Trevor, you are good enough to go to heaven. But it's not by works of righteousness that I have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved me. And then he looked on Christ and he saw my life. All the bad things I've done and all the good things that I've done. He said, that guy deserves my wrath. And he poured that out on his son on Calvary. That is the transaction that God is willing to make with anyone who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. If you do not know who he is, please come talk to me. The God that Nehemiah served is the same God that we serve today. Let us remember this week to pray to him in a way that is honoring to him, in a way that he deserves, and recognizing who he is. Let's pray. Oh, great God, awesome God, powerful God, you are the God who made the earth, you made the sun and moon and stars. You give us breath. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy and grace that you pour out on us. We do not deserve it. Father, we ask you that you would grow the passion in our hearts for your word, that you would grow our desire to pray to you, that, Lord, though we fail in how we read your word, how we study your word, how we pray to you, we ask that you would encourage us and strengthen us. We need you. We love you. In your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.